Well, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Well Said. Today, I've invited back Dakota Wood, Senior Research Fellow of Defense Programs in the Center for National Defense at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you, Dakota, for joining us once again. Hey, it's great being with you. Thanks mm -hmm. for a great chat. <laughs> yeah. The reason I asked you back is to follow up on our last episode where we discussed weakness through wokeness, where on the 20th anniversary of September 11th, we discussed what the military stands to lose if it goes down the path of identity politics and begins incorporating this kind of Marxist ideology. In light of everything that has happened between then and now, I want okay. to have this conversation once again but in a slightly different context. So obviously this time more focused on how America's overall political culture and rejection of its founding principles has put us in a really vulnerable position with regards to our enemies and competitors on the international stage, especially with regards to deterrence, which we can talk about in a little bit as well. Um, we've seen how Putin has chosen to deal with a weakening America. So we can discuss why this happened, but I also want to discuss what our other competitors and enemies around the world are seeing when they look at the United States, watch our news, and when they read our social media posts, even the sad attempts at political messaging and like TikTok. Um, so I want to see, you know, when they see videos on YouTube, for example, of like screaming college students who are literally throwing childish tantrums, I want to know what you think about the future generation's abilities to keep our enemies at bay and maintain um, American prominence. So let's start there. Um, how, so as often as many things do, like, let's look at, let's look at the college campuses, uh, Dakota, what do you think when you consider our future generations of future generation of leaders, like kind of what are your first initial thoughts and what are your concerns? Yeah. So there's this, uh, I, I don't know if dichotomy is the right word, but you know, it would appear to be kind of an internal contradiction in just our system, you know, where we do have this right to speak freely, you know, you can express any opinion you want, uh, you know, can't shout fire in a crowded fire, you know, theater because uh, of potential damage, but you know, you know what I'm saying, you know, so we have this ability to do this, but because of that, you know, we can have segments of the population that are just at radically different ends of a philosophical spectrum or political ideology. And, and we enjoy that, that freedom. I mean, it really is a strength of the United States to have such a diverse uh, range of views. And yet you cannot forget about or exclude uh, the divisive nature, right? And where it starts pitting people against each other um, and, and really erodes tolerance, I guess, in, in many ways when you take these extreme positions. So I know it sounds kind of like I'm rambling, but it really goes to the heart of the identity or character of the country, right? And so if you're external to the United States, you have a different system like, uh, you know, a political Islam in, in Iran, or um, if you're in Beijing, uh, perhaps not the Chinese people writ large, all 1.4 billion of them. But if you're the leadership in the Chinese Communist Party, which is calling the shots in China, or if you're among that kind of core group of, it appears to be sycophantic uh, you know, advisors to Vladimir Putin in Moscow, you look at the United States and we're just in complete disarray, right? I mean, we've lost any kind of grounding and objective truth or objective reality. You know, witness the uh, confirmation hearings, uh, you know, for the judge that's being considered to be a Supreme Court justice who refused to define what a woman is. I mean, you know, are we really to that point, right? Right. Uh, or this expectation that uh, I have the freedom or the right 
to choose my gender identity and my preferred pronoun. So I have that right, but you don't have the right, you know, to, to disagree with that. You know, I impose upon you this obligation to observe my freedom, but I don't have the same obligation to observe yours. Right. So it, it circles back around to this, you know, freedom of speech and kind of chart your own path with really a, a, a civic and social obligation to understand how that might affect uh, the various institutions, the fabric of our communities and our culture. And you know, clearly, I come to this stuff from a national security military standpoint, and the services are a great example of service to country, team building, uh, a unified, uniform identity, right? where somebody joins the Marine Corps, you know, or the Army, the Air Force, and, and you are effectively, you know, signing this contract that says, I am becoming part of this larger organization. The organization has a very defined mission. And so I need to set aside maybe some personal preferences, right? right? Or things that I think I would want to be able to articulate because that's the nature of this agreement, right? That there is this greater good that needs to be accomplished and we need to have right. you know, a team identity and a common identity and a unified purpose in what we're doing. And I think this discord that we see coming out of colleges and universities, and as you had and as we talked about here, these um, emerging young leaders mm-hmm. in different professions. Well, part of leading is not imposing your will on those subordinate to you, or you're trying to get as whatever followers or right. something like that. It's, you know, what are we trying to accomplish? What's the greater good? And how do we build up, you know, and how do we define ourselves as Americans that really is something different and something unique and something special? you know, on, yeah. on the world stage. Yeah, and I want to talk about first with, with something you mentioned towards the end, which is the, the military kind of, that it's designed to put your personal preferences aside yeah. so that you can have this team effort and really focus on the mission at hand. Um, and my biggest concern is that a lot of what we're seeing in, not only just with younger generations, but just generally with the woke, and we kind of talked about this in the last episode with what this woke ideology is that it is starting to impose itself on the military and it's starting to create a situation where service members have to ask themselves, you know, what are my cultural principles? What are, what are, what are the things that I care most and deeply about? And are those more important than the mission itself? And so, and because, and then how does that play into, for example, what I'm being told to do um, you know, whether it be for the defense department or the commander in chief or kind of like what, what that societal influences. And so I, I just, I'm curious what your take is on that and kind of what it's looking like right now, because I'm thinking about this in context of, for example, I've heard a lot of stories that coming out of, uh, Ukraine where Russian soldiers don't even really know why they're there. Um, and they didn't realize that they were basically targeting Kiev and, or if that was even like that, that that's just like, they were not being told things. Right. So, are we kind of going, are we creeping down this path where service members are not going to be able to have a say at all in, in the mission itself? Or kind of like, what is your, because especially if the mission is for some sort of woke ideological like goal, right? So, yeah, so yeah. right. You know, one of the beauties of, at least in the American military model, uh, you know, the civilian control over the military, right? So the military itself is not some independent political entity or a power structure that imposes its will like it is in 
you know, Turkey or Pakistan or, or, or many other countries, right? So that uh, if you're wearing the uniform of the country, you salute smartly and do your absolute best to carry out, you know, the orders or tasks given to you. Um, does that mean that everybody is some kind of a robotic figure, you know, this automaton that has no individual identity? Well, absolutely not. You know, it's that mutual respect I kind of talked about, or at least implied earlier, you know, where there's an awareness of what the purpose is and the greater good. But the military in our model is exploitable, right? It can be exploited by political powers. Right. So if you have an administration that comes into power and they have a particular uh, ideological agenda, right? And they want to impose that, well, if it's within the laws of the land and they're ordering the military to adopt certain practices or teach certain classes, you know, this identity politics or uh, viewing each other through a racial lens, right? Or setting yeah. quotas or changing military standards so that we get the outcome that they desire in terms of how the military looks, you know, and gender right. and race and these sorts of things, regardless of uh, maybe performance, you know, a standards-based performance in a certain area. Well, the military, because of its professional upbringing, is going to try to execute those policies. And if you found military service members that refused, mm -hmm. you're creating some real um, combat credibility problems, you know, that the, the good order and discipline, you know, that phrase that we often hear about, you know, do people right. follow orders or don't they, right? Well, those issuing the orders have a responsibility to the force that the policies or the orders that they're giving don't end up destroying the institution yeah. and creating division and breaking down, you know, uh, teamwork or team identity, right? If you want your soldiers or airmen to view each other through a racial lens, well, how is that unifying in some way? We're supposed to be getting past that, you know, when they pass through the portals of these training centers and all that sort of stuff. So there is a responsibility by the civilian leadership to understand that and account for it, that when they refuse to acknowledge that aspect and they want to impose, the dilemma we create in the military is, is do you carry out that order? OK, right. now it can be fairly simple and that if if you, the service person or the service leader in the uniform, feel that you just cannot carry that thing out, then you resign, you know, from that position and you go off and do other great things for the country. But wow, what a destructive you know, effect we can right. have on the U.S. military. So, again, I go back to this idea of mutual responsibility and respect and an understanding of what we might be doing to these institutions through this, this blind or mindless or uncaring imposition of some of these ideologies. And again, go back to this identity politics, you know, yeah. nonsense, right? And it's just a disregard or maybe I guess we're going to be as positive as we can, you know, lack of understanding of the military world. But if you're coming in as a political appointee, you know, mm -hmm. aren't you obligated then to understand the organization? you know, over which you have been given various authorities. And that seems to be lacking uh, these days. Yeah, I mean, maybe I'm maybe I'm a little bit um, more paranoid than you are about this. But I mean, you seem to be approaching this as a very like level headed and mature um, <laughs> take. 
compared to, I mean, I, I, I genuinely believe that a lot of what the, the progressive left's goal is actually not to unify, it's actually to divide. And if that, yeah. divi that divisive yeah. nature of their movement starts to seep into the military, like the concept of unity is not even present in their ideology. Like it's actually the goal is to break it all down and rebuild it in their own image, right? So yeah. it, well, maybe this is part of the bigger picture here. I don't know. <laughs> No, no, I, I, I think you're really, you know, talking about some realities here, you know, that the political agenda is more important, right, mm -hmm. on their plate, it has a higher priority than the potential damage they're doing to the military itself, right. So just as an example, and this, you know, goes back many years now, if, if we wanted to normalize, which has now happened in the country homosexual marriage, okay. Mm -hmm. The 50 states were a great construct by the founding founders so that the citizens of each state could elect their own, you know, kind of autonomous, you know, governing structure within the state. But we were all unified in these mm -hmm. states under a common federal government, right? But you had these, these wonderful examples, you know, now 50 of different models, you know, different economic and tax structures and rules for whatever, gun ownership or those sorts of things. So a lot of these things were supposed to remain at the state level. Well, if you come in at the federal level and you have an agenda of, of normalizing, you know, same-sex marriage, for example, one way to do that is to use a federal organization, right, to pass a rule that would allow that. So now you have two soldiers who are male, they get married in a state where that was legal, you know, at a particular mm -hmm. time, but because they're subject to orders to the federal government and they can be moved around the country, it sets up this court contest where do they have, you know, visitation rights and benefits and, you know, this healthcare shared and all those things, irrespective of what the state in which they were uh, assigned you know, with, with the right. citizens of that state. So I'm using that as an example where somebody coming in with this divisive ideology, whatever that might be, right, can leverage or exploit the military as a rules following, salute smartly carried out right, sort exactly. of organization to impose their agenda on the country as a whole and bypass, you know, local interests, uh, the, the, the desires or the political will of the citizens of a particular state or even their own governing structure in that state. And, and so this, to your point now, right, points out how somebody can be uh, so uncaring of the damage that they might be causing and are likely causing in such a critically important organization as the U.S. military, right, that they're trying to stamp their own desires, you know, their political agenda on these organizations to, I think, the, the greater harm of the country as a whole. And you say you say uncaring, which I think is still a little bit more forgiving, because I even think some <laughs> some of it might actually be intentional and part yeah, of this plan. Right. But that's that's me being, you know, my typical like paranoid self. So, <laughs> well, I tell you, I mean, as many people come in, you know, they do have different agendas. So you can have a, truly an American hating individual Mm -hmm. you know, who comes through whatever their path was, their academia or their political donor or whatever that might be, and they are appointed into positions by presidents, hmm. right? And, and they just right. don't seem to not only not give a hoot about the country, but they want to change the country. You know, the right. United States isn't special or unique. You know, the Judeo-Christian basis uh, for our kind of governing structures and cultural value systems and those sorts of things need to be destroyed and replaced with something else, right? So mm -hmm. uh, that doesn't pertain to everybody, 
you know, I mean, that there are different individuals with different sorts of agendas. But what I also try to keep in mind is just the country does change over time. I'm not in favor of a lot of these changes that I see, but you know, I was born in 1963, which seems, you know, 200 years ago, right? <laughs> and so as I grew up, there were certain cultural norms that were in place, you know, and I joined the military in the early 1980s, right? And so it was just kind of a different world. But today, in today's society, if you're an 18 year old coming out of today's high school systems, you know, what you find normal and every day in your social media and in your classrooms and then, you know, pop culture and the entertainment industry and all those sorts of things, you bring with you that norm into the military. And that's going to be a different perspective on things than maybe the old general or admiral you know, is uh, further up the chain and, and came in at a different time, right? Yeah. So, yeah. So, so is that good or bad? Well, we can, you know, debate that all day long. I'm just saying that it's different. And so as our recruiters go out into the American youth population, they're dealing with a different group of people with different views that have been shaped by these educators coming out of a lot of these elite universities and they have their own agendas. And these things, I'm sure you've covered, you know, ad nauseum, in the various uh, school materials, the books, you know, all the things from elementary school on up, and it is shaping opinions, you know, in a way that is different than what the country uh, enjoyed and really prized uh, not too many decades ago. Let's talk about this some more. Um, the next generation of leaders, I'm really curious kind of what your, your thoughts are on this, because the level of self-censorship on college campuses is at an all-time high. I think FIRE sure. came out with a report last year that said it was over 80% that students actually admit to censoring themselves on campuses, um, either whether it be in the classroom or um, discussing with one another on, you know, through a debate or something, mm -hmm. um, that they hide their beliefs. And they either hide their beliefs or they actually, I think in that case, end up not even developing them or really developing those stronger convictions because they're not forced to defend them. Um, so in looking at that, plus now adding that uh, phenomenon with what we're seeing on the other end of the spectrum, which is that you get these student government association senators, which I've seen this kind of across the board on campuses as I've been looking, um, looking at them and talking with students, they're kind of on these like tyrannical missions. They're, they're passing, um, they're pass trying to pass policies that really restrict what clubs and other students can say or do that are very much kind of like, and they're, they're, they're pretty much taken over by like this like woke mob mentality. They want to impose all of these progressive leftist ideas onto the campuses. And um, so combined with that type of leadership, right? Cause that's what's coming out. Those are the students who are gonna get put, put on their resumes that they were, you know, student government president or mm -hmm. that they um, had, you know, been success. They've, they've, they're the ones who are involved in all these clubs and involved in everything. So they're actually going to see some success probably, you know, down the road. The fact that they're seeking out leadership roles shows evidence that they're attracted to these positions and they're attracted to this way, the style of leadership, whether lack of leadership, right? So I guess my question is for you, kind of what's going on with this convictionless, like middle of the road, keep your yeah. head down, future generation, but then also the tyrannical the other side of that generate the same generation that's kind of going to be what, what are we seeing here for the future? Well, future leadership? Yeah, I mean, it's it's the destructive uh, hypocrisy of the progressive left in these matters, right? So uh, sometimes the rhetoric 
are all the right words, you know, speak truth to power, encourage your convictions, stand up to authority, you know, those sorts of things. And, and somebody in a, in a true leadership position, right. uh, you know, you would want them to step out, you know, to take the initiative, to chart the course, you know, to hold people accountable and those sorts of things. So these should be positive attributes. Where the hypocrisy comes in is them saying those sorts of things, but only if what you were going to say aligns with their preferred, you know, policy right. agenda or ideology, right? So in the old days, and I don't know how old the old days are, but, you know, <laughs> we did self-censor uh, for positive reasons out of kindness. Uh, you know, you go to a church social and eat somebody's macaroni and cheese, and it was horrible tasting, but if the you know, wonderful grandma who made it said, how'd you like the macaroni and cheese? Oh, this is the greatest <laughs> thing I've ever had, you know, because you were just kind and polite, you didn't want to give offense, right? That is different than what we see today where there is fear of reprisal, of job loss, of punishment, right? Of, of ostracism uh, on these campuses and, and in these uh, uh, businesses. You know, I mean, how many examples do we need where whatever, some corporate CEO decides to exercise their prerogative, right? Their right to provide support to some political candidate but golly, if, if it didn't align with, you know, the preferred candidate of whoever their, you know, woke employee base is or some influential, you know, person on social media, they get bounced by their board and lose their job and their income. You know, the shutting down of speech on campuses. If you bring in one speaker that aligns with the preferred ideology, uh, there's all kinds of cheers and, you know, we're going to support this person, even if they're controversial in a sense, but if some other speaker wants to come in, really showing, you know, an acceptance of diversity of opinions, different view, I mean, how many times do they shut down uh, controversial conservative speakers, you know, uh, right. in preference to uh, progressive uh, uh, liberal? So this is the hypocrisy that I'm talking about. That is damaging. Right. So people who self-censor out of fear and intimidation uh, you know, the social coercion that comes, uh, a professor that's going to give you failing marks if your paper isn't written in a way that echoes what they would prefer you to write. You know, that's not freedom of speech, right? That's not really accepting diversity of opinion and views and learning from each other. That's repression, you know, and it's the same kind of authoritarianism that we see in these repressive regimes in countries like Iran and China and Russia and others that our military has to deal with. You know, if we want America to stay you know, free, prosperous and safe, right, all those sorts of things. So if the new leaders, if student leaders are coming through that system, at what point do they really become aware of a responsibility to to entertain, you know, these different walks of life, you know, these different viewpoints? So, again, on the military thing, if you're a battalion commander and you've got 800 people in your battalion, you've drawn in these young folks from all over the country, you know, different racial backgrounds, different economic settings, you know, family situations, um, ethnicities, I mean, all these things. And you have to form a team. And so you do this by having a, a common identity of being a United States Marine or being a U.S. Army soldier, you know, or a space guardian. And you're all there to support the country that you love, that represents something special that needs to be defended and to which you have some measure of loyalty, right? right. Well, if these people coming in have a very slanted, progressive, liberal sort of thing, just like 
again, days gone by, if you were this extreme kind of right-wing white supremacist in the true sense, you know, not as being fictionalized by the progressive left these days, you know, but if, but if you know, if you were some kind of, you know, robe-wearing, uh, you know, racist uh, sort of bigot, well, you wouldn't want those people in there either, right? right. Right. Um, but I think this uh, what we're the, the, the language we're seeing coming out of campuses is so heated and so extremist that to try to paint everybody who doesn't align with their way of thinking as some kind of an extremist individual. Right. And it's just not true. Right. And so it leads to this division and to lack of a coherent identity. And if our new leaders are coming out of that community, it's not going to be good for the military specifically. Uh, or for other social organizations, you know, civic groups or the country as a whole. Yeah, and I'm thinking about this even more on like a strategic scale. If you yeah. have this, for example, kind of these, these students, they say, uh, I think a study came out not too long ago on Generation Z uh, or I don't, Gen Z, I guess. is. So they apparently are the most moderate generation at their age, at that age encapsulated mm -hmm. compared to other generations and that they... And some people say that that's a positive thing and that they're kind of more accepting and more open-minded. To me, that actually is a negative thing and that they're not really willing to choose a side. And I think it goes back to the self-censorship issue where sure. people are afraid to pick a side because, and they would just rather avoid that altogether and just go middle of the road. And then when I look at kind of the way the current administration has handled the Russian invasion of Ukraine mm -hmm. and this complete lack of decisiveness, where we're going to draw the line, like it's just kind of all over the place. And we've seen this historically as well, how this plays out and how our enemies are going to view this behavior. What happens when we have an entire generation of leaders who are like indecisive, right? Because deterrence kind yeah. of relies on these decisive consequences that would follow any kind of action on, on our enemy, you know, behalf. Yeah, we, so, yeah. yeah, I mean, you, you have to pick a side. Yeah, ultimately, right? right? And, and that picking aside presumes that you have arrived at a conclusion about right or wrong or good or bad or what's of value and, and what isn't, you know, what could be destructive or harmful. So if, if in your raising, whether in the family or, or in the schools these days, there is no objective truth or reality, you know, there is nothing that so defines the United States as being something special and better than other forms of government, right? Mm -hmm. or about sorts of things so then you're kind of left to drift and why should you pick a side right because everything is kind of roughly the same and we want to be accepting of everybody and we're fearful of saying that you know something is is harmful you know rather than being uh, good and positive so if we have removed that aspect from the raising and the education of our youth then i don't know how you do pick a side right, right. <clears throat> because it means that you have to choose and there are, in a crude sense, you know, winners and losers, things that are acceptable and things that, that aren't acceptable, right? So when we, you know, do want to trumpet uh, what America has stood for since its founding, why people want to come here in droves, and you don't see a mass influx of migrants to China or Russia, right? I mean, why is that? You know, why is it that we have had a higher standard of living or more freedom and liberty that is often exploited, you know, and misused, but, but that's the aspect of freedom, you know, to be able to do that. And, and like I mentioned very early on, you know, the co-commitment sort of responsibility to, to take that responsibility and to be aware of what uh, freedom uh, allows you to do and how it can be misused. So if we're not teaching that in our civics education, or in our, you know, evaluation of uh, principles of liberty and democracy and, 
you know, true acceptance of these sorts mm-hmm. of things. And you never do have to pick a side, you know? And, and so I think that is really uh, the more troubling thing that you have brought up. You know, if you have a company that is headquartered in the United States, but they're accessing a global market, we see corporate decisions that minimize any kind of an allegiance to the United States because they don't want to get cut off from a 1 billion person market in China. Right. So we see Hollywood, for example, heavily influenced by China. We see uh, sports like uh, you know, the NBA, right? That wants to sell lots of jerseys in the People Republic, People's Republic of China. And so they are very hesitant to talk about human rights abuses, you know, mm-hmm. or just the horrific behavior by the Chinese Communist Party because it's all money driven. So they don't seem to have any kind of uh, fealty, you know, or any kind of um, a sense of, um, of desired obligation uh, to, to put America first. You know, I mean, am I, you were an American you know, corporate entity, or are you this global entity, which is sheer nonsense. And it reflects this idea of a refusal to pick a side or an awareness that at some point a side has to be picked, you know? Right. I mean, if you're in Ukraine and you are under assault by Russia, do you step up and fight for your country? Hmm. Or do you just go ahead and leave and say, well, you know, I can get a job as a baker in France, you know, or, or go to the United States and be an Uber driver or something like that. And yet we see these people stepping up because it's their homeland, it's their culture, um, it's their country. And they have identified as Ukrainians under assault by an authoritarian repressive regime that wants to eliminate their identity and reincorporate them into this kind of greater czarist Russia, right? So they are having to pick a side. And uh, just like we need to, you know, pick our friends and uh, you know, pick a country that we love or defend a family member or something like that, th- there comes this point in time in all of our lives where you have to decide what's important to you, what battle do you want to wage, and that takes courage, and it's all based on your um, identifying things that are more important than others, you know, right and wrong, and what is good and helpful and productive, as opposed to things that are destructive. Yeah, and I want to so I was driving around this small town the other day and I noticed that there was a house with two flags hanging outside of it. One was, and this is like kind of in the countryside of Pennsylvania, like, you know, where you would expect sure. a lot of like patriotism. And uh, anyway, so it had a Ukrainian flag hanging out and then an LGBTQ flag with like the 50 stars and stuff, but no, Amer- no actually like American flag. Right. And so what concerns me a little bit, um, actually a lot is this, extreme uh, loyalty and fealty that I've seen towards Ukraine since the invasion of Russia. Is this an anti-Russia movement? Or like, I, I'm curious, because Hollywood has, has like raised millions yeah. of dollars for this, this, you know, the invasion of Ukraine. And they were like, all everyone's like, flocking to this like pro-Ukraine, anti-Russia rhetoric and, and all over social media. Would we see the same response if someone invaded the United States? Would we see the same response if there was ever a threat to the United States? Because I mean, currently being in the national security apparatus or, you know, in the defense policy world, you already know there is like a really valid threat to the United States and that is China, but we don't really see this same fealty to patriotism. And there's actually kind of a complete rejection to patriotism amongst these same folks who are flocking towards Ukraine. So I'm kind of curious what your thoughts are on all of that. If you think it's actually going to come down to we would need like a physical threat against us 
or an actual physical action against us in order for people to start being more patriotic again, or if, if, if it's salvageable before it comes to that. Yeah, I, I think the unfortunate reality is what you just said, that it takes um, uh, an actual physical threat, some kind of dramatic crisis, you know, catastrophe uh, that forces people to do things that they're nat not naturally inclined to do during, you know, times of goodness and peace and prosperity. I mean, we've had a pretty good run uh, you know, since the late 1980s and the, you know, the collapse of the Soviet Union, you know, that we weren't faced with any kind of existential threat or crisis. You know, in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, you had kids in schoolrooms across the country that would still do duck and cover drills, uh, you know, in, in these uh, rehearsals for if we were under nuclear attack from the Soviet Union. I mean, I can remember that when I was a little kid, right? So there was this visceral, physical reality of news clips of, you know, Soviet Navy uh, flotillas, you know, fleets out there in the oceans and, you know, bomber aircraft in the air and missile tests and nuclear explosions, you know, the testing ranges and stuff. It was real. And then after the Soviet Union went away, all that disappeared, right? So we saw a huge outpouring of patriotism in the wake of the attacks of 9-11. I think because it was so emotional, and you saw pictures of people jumping out of windows, you know, the World Trade Center uh, building buildings. Uh, you know, you saw the smoke coming up out of the Pentagon and firefighters showing up and people showing up with you know, plates of cookies and stuff to support the first responders uh, who were really, you know, um, uh, uh, piling in on that stuff. We see something similar when a tornado, you know, goes through the Midwest or a hurricane. Uh, you know, damages or destroys, you know, local towns on the coastline, you know, people are emotionally driven. Yeah, but and we're so, not seeing, we're not seeing Hollywood movie stars raise millions of dollars for the people of Kansas. Well, no, right? no, I agree. But I'm saying that there are these instances, yeah. right? right? So the thing with the Ukraine and Ukrainian flags and all that stuff is it's mm -hmm. easy to romanticize that, you mm -hmm. know, it's distant. They weren't doing anything against Russia. Russia comes in and now we see these emotionally heart-wrenching, you know, videos of, uh, you know, a maternity hospital getting, you know, bombed or a, a theater in which four or 500 people have taken refuge and a lot of the dead or children. Mm -hmm. And so it, it's, it's easier because it's emotionally compelling to kind of want to provide your support. And so you can do that with the flag or raising funds uh, or, you know, sharing something on social media, but it's not really costing you anything, is it? Right. I mean, you know, are you actually having to pick up a rifle and, uh, you know, suffering the risk of, you know, engaging a, you know, a Russian uh, military formation or something like that. Right. So I think, you know, again, it's it's emotionally satisfying. There is a social media narrative, you know, about Ukraine under attack uh, by these, you know, bloody Russians and those sorts of things. Uh, but is that different? Obviously, it is than than rising to support your own country in relative times of peace and identifying yourself as a proud American. So where was the American flag, you know, in right. the lawn or on the outside of that house to begin with? You know, in my right. neighborhood, you drive around, you see Marine Corps flags, from old retired Marine Corps guys and, and right. you get and you see American flags and I've got, you know, a Marine Corps sticker on the back of my vehicle and all that. And my wife, you know, on her car, uh, does have a Ukrainian flag kind of painted on the window because she understands people fighting for liberty and survival and freedom and and all that that represents. But that's alongside our American, you know, uh, mm -hmm. Marine Corps sticker on the vehicle. 
and her license plate, you know, which is a, you know, kind of a don't tread on me sort of thing. Right. And, and so, you know, I think for most people though, it is easy to get kind of caught up in their own daily lives. Living is easy for the most part. We're not subject to all sorts of threats. And so we can get kind of really loose in our thinking, you know, and get very kind of hyper idealized in our, in our belief systems that just don't really align with, with reality. You know, I mean, how do people still buy things made in China, knowing that your dollars are going to the Chinese Communist Party and their suppression of the Uyghurs, you know, and all the other things that China does in in developing and evolving its surveillance state, you know, Mm -hmm. so the pocketbook is one thing, things that are emotionally satisfying or something else. And I think it isn't until an actual physical threat uh, comes here to our homeland that we'll see this kind of resurgence of patriotic fervor and having to pick sides, pick a team right. you know, about who do you want to support and defend. Well, I mean, I think you touched on something here. In addition to picking a side, I mean, I think a lot of what we're seeing with this divisiveness in our political culture is actually evidence of kind of this this relaxed, more decadent society that we're in mm-hmm. and that we can kind of start we have that luxury now of being able to criticize others outside of our own, you know, outside of our own household and not have to self-reflect so much on kind of what we're doing, but actually kind of reflect on what others are doing. And so, and then kind of making that the priority to us. Right. So. Well, well, yeah. And I'll I'll interrupt here, obviously, you know, because there's no cost to that. Right. You actually derive a benefit, (laughs) right. Right. The the kind of the woke elements of our culture uh, will praise you and make you the mm-hmm. corporate CEO, give you tenure at the university because yeah, exactly. you're edgy and progressive and you're so enlightened and those sorts of things. So there's yep. there's no uh, there's no cost to jumping on that bag and there's everything to gain. Exactly. You know, Hollywood awards and these sorts of mm-hmm. things. So if it was different, you know, then you would see, I think, a different behavior in the in the general population. Oh, I think you're absolutely right. And I mean, kind of taking that to the next level, looking at how our enemies perceive this, right? So obviously we've had entire generations that now have grown up in this kind of more decadent society. And we, you know, they, there is like a certain laziness of political fervor attached to it. Like there's not, you know, there's, they're, they're, they're clearly active and passionate about something, but it's, in times either misdirected or uneducated, partly because they don't want to do the work to really have like strong convictions or to stand up for um, what they believe in by actually looking into it and having real facts to back it up and knowing what they're talking about, which is a whole other, (laughs) which is a whole other level of things. But I I guess I want to ask you a little bit, and then we can, we can break this down a little bit more too, if you, if you'd like, Um, but just more so when you have countries like China who play the long game, right? Because I think we're about to see two presidents in a row that have served like one term. I mean, I'm not making any predictions here, but it's, I think that speaks a little bit to the indecisiveness of the United States and where we're at right now and, and how we're kind of all over the map. And then you see countries like China who play the long game and who are planning generations ahead and taking advantage of everything that they can in our end. You know, they're, they're manipulating Hollywood. They're investing so heavily in everything in the United States that we actually can't divest from them. Um, if you look at like New York and Chicago and, and how beholden they are to, to Chinese money, it's, it's really disconcerting when you're looking at it from a national security perspective, because all of a sudden now our culture is disintegrating. There's this country trying to increase this wedge between our political divide. And then at the same time, they have us 
you know, they have us tied down to them financially. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on just generally like the weakening of the culture and kind of the laziness and then and choosing a side, but more how that speaks to the national security concerns with China. So um, again, it's going to kind of sound weird uh, <laughs> in my response, but I can relate this, let's say, to a, a, a military Marine Corps infantry battalion, right? Mm -hmm. So um, uh, during time of peace, I could take the makeup of that battalion and we could make it look exactly like the diverse uh, society we have in the United States. You know, uh, but if I had, again, you know, 500 infantrymen or something like that, how many of them are women, how many of them are men, you know, black, Hispanic, Asian, you know, Polynesian, old white boys, you know, those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. And we could make it look like that by adjusting standards or just dictating that's what it looks like, right? Mm -hmm. I won't know what the effectiveness of that unit is until it's actually subjected to combat. And then I find out who can carry a fellow Marine, who can, you know, load artillery rounds into, you know, a, a piece of artillery, uh, you know, the physicality and all those sorts of things. So my point is that based on the history of warfare and what has uh, been demanded of infantry units and what has performed well, I have a sense as to the goodness or badness of that idea, you know, fabricating what it might look like. Mm -hmm. uh, but I can't prove to you because the battlefield is someplace in the future, right? And so it's kind of this speculative, uh, you know, my warning based on my read of history, but this is a future event that, you know, may never occur. So we can continue to kind of make excuses and impose our own desires on whatever that organization looks like. Okay, so mm -hmm. using that kind of as a as an example, now we look at uh, city governance. You know, let's look at, at what has transpired in cities like Baltimore and St. Louis and Chicago and San Francisco and all with the political leadership and the policies that have been in place. You know, defund the police. Right. And uh, ignoring uh, small level crime, uh, releasing people with no bail or very, very early, you know, with 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 a, a little bail, right. you know, those sorts of things, mm -hmm. and, and because we're able to make excuses and there aren't any severe consequences immediately. Mm -hmm. People base their spending decisions on how much money they have in their wallet at the moment. Right. Whether they can extend that on credit so the payment is pushed off to some far distant place in the future, because everybody seems to live in the now without mm -hmm. regard to where that will likely lead on down the road. You know, if I live my life a particular way and it turns out that I'm penniless, I don't have health insurance, I'm a physical wreck, um, I've got no solid you know, family relationships because I estranged everybody and was abusive and all that stuff. Well, that's, you know, 30, 40, 50 years down the road, and now it's too late, you know? Mm -hmm. So we don't see these consequences up front because we have little sense of history and little sense of, again, an appreciation for kind of this uh, civic good, you know, picking a team, identifying as a country and why that takes time to build and why you have to maintain that over time because 30 or 40 years now from now, right? Mm -hmm. We will need that, that cohesive, you know, unified um, country or family or local, local community that has been based on a set of principles that over millennia have, have proven themselves to have a, of an enduring sort of good. So a country like China, for example, um, like I said, not a whole lot of immigration, right? 
Right. Uh, if you're not Han Chinese, then you're not going to work out in our society. You're not going to get you know entrance into the Chinese Communist Party and stuff. And so they can kind of dictate how things are going, and they do have these longer-term objectives: getting their students into our universities. You know, uh, baiting or tantalizing. American companies with access to the Chinese market, which you'll never fully get anyway, right? Mm -hmm. But there is that that very in the now desire to get the corporate profit, you know, in this quarter or in this uh, fiscal year, as opposed to something 10 years down the road, right? And so we just, we have had the luxury mm. of kind of, you know, wallowing on our own self-absorbed you know, ideologies. So does that make sense? You know, no, it makes a lot of sense. And part of me is starting to wonder, and I know this would open a whole new can of worms, is how much of this is due to like government programs and like federal, the federal government basically holding everyone's hand and saying, oh, yeah. you don't have to prepare for the future. We got you. And then that's kind of like what the progressive left is really trying to take us to a full on yeah. version of, right? You, you can pick whatever path you want. There are no consequences. And if there are on the off chance, some kind of negative consequences, don't worry about it. We'll take care of you. Right. And you this know, is this is the beginning I, of Marxist ideology, right? It because is. At the no, end of the day, this is what communism leads to is that the, you can make any choice you want. You're all going to make the same amount of money. Government will take care of you. We'll figure it out. You just do you. And, you see, so, and, the, and the lie is, is that, well, the rich will pay for this. Right. Well, if there aren't any rich, <laughs> then who pays for it? The answer right. is nobody, right? There is no free lunch. Mm -hmm. So we can have all these federal subsidies, all these handouts, all these programs, that basically insulates people from poor life decisions, you know, that either they have made mm -hmm. or their family units around them have made, right? That in one sense, old Scar from The Lion King was, was true when he says life's not fair, right? Uh, but right. you can certainly make life a lot better, uh, right. longer term and for more people if we just exercised a bit of self-discipline, a bit of self-denial. Right self-sufficiency and not expecting that some mythical government, you know, with its bags of money that it prints with abandon, uh, will ignore inflation, will ignore fiscal long-term, you know, fiscal viability for the country, just so that you can get the check in the mailbox, right? Yeah. Uh, now, clearly, are there people who actually need, you know, and deserve, you know, that kind of support? Absolutely. I mean, it's a Christian principle, you know, that people will find themselves in a spot in life, but it's also incumbent upon those people to try to do better for themselves too, you know, right. um, you know, work of some type, you know, while you're getting some kind of a government uh, you right. know, handout or subsidy or something like that. So we've forgotten those aspects because people find it is, it is not only possible, it is easy to ascend to positions of power by offering to their constituencies, right? Their support base, lots of goods that is free of charge to that particular constituent, right? Right. And, and we just kind of off put. So we're freeing ourselves from consequences and responsibility and any obligation by trying to chart as easy a path as possible, which always leads to bad outcomes. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, and I think they're taking advantage. I mean, human nature is to kind of go down the path of least resistance, right? So, you know, if you're constantly offered that path, you know, it's people are, you know, even if yeah. we're wise enough to say, okay, we should be hesitant here, you know, the more tantalizing these policies are that are going to be offered up, regardless of how expensive they are, because like you said, it's, if it's, if it were, we're operating in the here and now, and we're not operating in the future, like, 
-hmm. we always talk about, especially conservatives talk about this big national debt, right? That eventually, you know, we're going to ever, they're going to come home to roost and we're going to have to actually pay it off, or there's going to be some sort of like great recession or something attached to it. But yet we keep spending and we keep allowing politicians to spend. And I don't want to get in a big discussion on debt, but I think it's when something is so far in the future or so, um, so large, like for example, the debt numbers to the point where it's almost inconceivable to the average person. I mean, trillions of dollars, we don't even know what that actually looks like. We don't know what trillions right. of dollars looks like. It's so outside of our normal way of thinking about money. Um, yeah. it's, it's so, un- so it kind of opens this, it opens this door for politicians to really take advantage of not really necessarily the ignorance, but just kind of the, the inability to conceive, right? Like we can't conceive of these these ideas um, because it's not something that we tangibly see on a regular basis. Yeah, I mean, I wish I could remember the name of the college, but in the news headlines here the last couple of days for some. Oh, college Yale. <laughs> yeah. Are we talking about Yale? Or are we talking about something else? <laughs> I don't know, but it's, it was like a master's program, a master's degree in happiness or something. Oh, okay, okay, that's not the one I'm thinking of. But you know, <laughs> so it's one of these things where I can take out a student loan that I won't yeah. have to pay for ten years from now, and I can use my academic time sitting in a classroom you know, getting a degree in happiness. Okay, well, how does yeah. that translate into any kind of productive, you know, right. uh, profession? You know what I'm saying? Uh, yeah. I guess no, I completely agree. teaching yeah. that, but it's, it's just, you know, wanting to avoid pain, any kind of difficulty, any kind of challenge, uh, wanting to avoid, you know, picking a team uh, or a side or a country uh, because you ultimately have to come back to making a decision you know, and taking position on a particular issue. Right. And oftentimes that uh, encumbers you in some way, right? That, that you have to affect some level of self-denial or, you know what I'm saying? It, 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 yeah, I mean, it, if you refuse to take, make a choice, I mean, we, we yeah. talked about how the students with tyrannical pensions are going to take advantage of that. And that's just general in, general in life. Like if you're not gonna pick a side and you're gonna be, you know, complacent and keep your head down, Others that are picking a side will take advantage of you and will Definitely. manipulate your environment entirely to fit their ends, right? So I think I want to bring this back to, to the concern with China because, mm-hmm. um, I mean, I again, this is like the paranoid self and that I, you know, when you when I look at like social media and I see these videos, you talked earlier about how um, kind of the younger generations operate as if there's no consequences in life. And, you know, you look at these kind of videos that are popular on TikTok and Instagram and or what you're seeing on social media and kids are just kind of running around like doing random things as if there's no consequence. You've heard of kids who've like killed themselves trying to take selfies in really extreme places, things mm-hmm. like this. There's no like concept of, of, you know, maybe we should be doing something more productive with our time, but also the things that we're doing right now are kind of ridiculous and not self-serving and they don't really contribute to society at all. There's no, no thinking at all in that, in that regard. Well, yeah. But I, I want to know, yeah. Well, so I want to know like what your thoughts are on whether or not they, with, with how China is looking at everything and how they want to, it's in, in, in their interest that we, our American culture disintegrates, right? And yeah. that we, our political divide is widened. So how, how do you think they manipulate not only like our social media apparatuses, but like Hollywood movies, everything that we see as a society, how do you think China's involved in that manipulation effort? And you, you feel free to like completely deny, say that they're not, but I mean, I, I feel yeah. like they absolutely are. <laughs> Yeah, I, no, I- internal, it's it's fear and intimidation, right? So right. if you say anything on any of the social media that is allowed in China, mm. that is in any way critical of the regime, you know, the Chinese Communist Party, 
uh, or, or, or the, you know, the government there, then uh, you're social, you have a social credit score that is lessened, you know, that you take a hit to that. So you can't get a job. You can't travel outside of the country. You can't travel inside the country, you know, mm-hmm. right. papers with you. Maybe your husband or wife or your parents suffer some kind of consequence. So this surveillance state of, of looking at everything that you do, where you go via closed circuit televisions, your banking transactions, your associations, either in person or social media, who you communicate with, all of that is surveilled. Mm-hmm. It's all um, it's all uh, inventoried, you know, and cataloged. And it used to be difficult to do that in the past because it was people writing down notes on three by five right. cards and maintaining files. Today, electronically, mm-hmm. it's all there, and it just yeah. goes into a, just a giant data set. And using various algorithms, you know, the better computers get, and you know, the evolution of artificial artificial intelligence, all this is automated. And mm-hmm. so you can crank out reports or start detecting trends and patterns in the blink of an eye, right? So that goes on inside of China. Outside of China, they make it as easy and seductive and pleasurable, right, and mm-hmm. profitable as possible. So huge checks in the form of grants to universities to do certain types of research, as long as you have Chinese students that are involved in that. Uh, TikTok videos. I mean, who doesn't love to watch a TikTok video? So Mm -hmm. people are posting things on social media, uh, you know, your various chat uh, groups, uh, the the running chats that you'll have while you're doing some kind of a multiplayer game online. All that is recorded. Okay. And it sounds like it's kind of a paranoid sort of thing, but it's not, you know, once you post something on the web, it is there permanently. Mm -hmm. You'll see, you know, that, uh, who was it? There was some appointee coming in under the Biden administration, uh, who was deleted. Oh, it's, uh, it's, uh, going to be a, a, a staffer for uh, the vice president, right? Kamala Harris, Uh uh, who's deleted something like 10,000 tweets, right? Uh, because uh, she has said things in the past that were hypercritical of various people and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And so the permanent record on the web is there were a certain number of tweets on one day, a week later, there are 10,000 fewer tweets, right? So once you put something out there, even if you think that you've deleted it, right, uh, that record is still uh, in place. So the whole point here now today with youth is they live in the moment. And there's no perspective of time, right, or endurance or enduring sorts of capabilities. So when some of these kids come out of college and they want to get a job with some employer, whatever, a law firm or a health agency or whatever that might be, Mm -hmm. today companies go back and look at your social media, right? And we've seen with Supreme Court nominees, you know, going before uh, the Senate, you know, for testimony and stuff. Oh, what, who were you with and what did you say 25 years ago? So yeah. to say that this is some fanciful notion is just not the case. So how China will leverage this is to make the gaming, the economic opportunities, uh, you know, the pleasures of life very, very easy to obtain uh, at no cost. I mean, does anybody pay anything, you know, to use social media or TikTok or something like that? Uh, when somebody's paying for that. And what you're doing is, is you're providing your, uh, your social media insights in your personal life, uh, your views and attitudes, and that is banked in some you know, massive database and can be used at some future point uh, to try to, you know, coerce or leverage or shape or, yeah. you know, reframe various issues. And I think people just don't have that kind of an awareness because, again, no existential threats, no appreciation okay. for the dangers of this kind of very 
you know, laissez-faire, uh, living in the moment sort of lifestyle. Yeah, and you know, I, I worry about just like kind of, so talking to students, one thing is that has become abundantly clear is that the left, actually the far left knows that what's online is permanent. Um, not only do they constantly look and search people's old Twitter accounts and try to like right. call people out on things, but they kind of started this doxing concept, right? Like they know that um, if, for example, I've talked to some students, conservative students who I feel really bad for them because, you know, just because they held a very like mainstream position on something, um, what would be considered like pretty normal, um, or they just didn't want to get involved with more political issues on their campuses, um, the, the woke students or the woke mob on their campus would start tweeting about them or yeah. attacking them on social media and saying, this person's a racist, this person's a bigot. And if yeah. that person chooses not to respond or they don't want to get involved, all of a sudden now there's an entire record on social media of them being a racist bigot, but there's yeah. nothing to, to counter that, that narrative, right? So- Yeah, they into the classroom and scoring of papers or- Right, and then- and then the employers will look, you know, look someone up, say they say they, you know, you're you're applying to law school or you're applying for a job. And then, like you said, they all use social media and the left knows that they do this. So then you're going to they're going to see an entire record of you having all of this baggage of whether or not you are a real racist or a bigot. They know that that's coming along. This accusation is coming along with hiring you or bringing you into that law school. So it could be very controversial and it could actually weigh significantly into whether or not you're you get the job or you're accepted. So. The question goes down to kind of like if this is already a tactic that's being utilized um, by by the woke mob and these look all of these students are going to graduate one day right so we've seen for example i brought up yale law school just a minute ago because um we see at yale there was a, a protest there was a, a perfectly like a perfectly sanctioned debate through through federalist society in that it was it was had the left and the right represented right you had um, someone from alliance defending freedom which is a more conservative legal organization so it's right. not like a crazy you know wild far right thing um and then you had someone from kind of a progressive legal organization to debate on what they could find in commonality with religious religious liberty i think that was the mm -hmm. topic but then you had all the yale students kind of stand up and protest to the point where the event couldn't move forward um right. and it was but these were law school students and everyone's kind of like oh my gosh now it's happening in law schools and i my response is of course it's happening in law schools the undergraduates graduate at some point you know and then they go to law school <laughs> and then they go to medical school then they go to all of these postgraduate programs um, or they enter the workforce and they bring all of their tactics and their methodologies with them and their immaturity as well um so when i so my point in going on this tie right of course is is to to ask you more about what you think about these folks entering the tech world right because they're all going to graduate a lot of them will probably enter tech fields of some sort because that's kind of the new up and coming uh job source um they're going to enter the tech field they're going to be able to stock docs and do weird things with other people's accounts that they don't like through twitter and social media accounts or they'll enter like the intelligence agencies or you know they'll they'll work for the yeah. nsa at some point what are they going to do with all of having access to everyone's records and phone calls? And, you know, what are they going to do with all this information? Yeah, it's, it's a danger. You know, code doesn't write itself. You mm -hmm. know, so we'll talk about algorithm. Algorithm is just a program. It's a set of rules. You know, if then or if I see this term, this is how I interpret it or whatever. Somebody is writing that code. So if, right. the, if, the, if the software code writer uh, carries with them a particular bias, you know, is, is, is one term inflammatory? as opposed to a different term. So right. when you type in a search query and you're using Google as your search engine, um, 
you know, the, the software that generates whatever those responses are, you know, what would come back as results has been framed in some way by the people who, who run that search engine you know, who write those rule sets and govern, you know, why something right. uh, gets a higher score than something else, right? And, uh, you know, same thing, if you're working in the Intel community, uh, you can see a piece of what we call raw Intel, you know, two people meeting or uh, military exercise occurring or <clears throat> um, a purchase of a raw material or something like that. Well, how do you interpret that? You know, is that a danger? Or is it nothing to be concerned about? Well, it comes from the perspective of the analyst looking at that. And so if you want uh, to view China as just a rising economic partner who's trying to find their place in the world, and you don't want to characterize it as an actual threat to the United States and our interests, then how you interpret that raw data and write it up in a report and it goes up the chain you know, to the president or whomever it might be, will carry that particular viewpoint. And we saw this during the Obama administration, mm-hmm. where they shifted from uh, basically a two-war capability or capacity doctrine, where the U.S. military needed to be big enough to handle two major contingencies near simultaneously. So if you had something like Ukraine, and you had to uh, surge uh, U.S. forces to Europe, uh, you would also have enough residual force to maintain a presence in the Indo-Pacific because of alliance you know, obligations with Japan or South Korea. <clears throat> well, you did that because you viewed uh, in the past China as an actual you know, military challenger and you viewed Russia as an actual military challenger. Well, the Obama team comes in, uh, they wanted to save money instead of defending, spending on defense, so they use that for green energy programs and you know, other sorts of domestic social policy agenda items. So they redefined China as not being a threat, but as an economic partner, right? So it's read, these are people redefining problems so that the problem is no longer a problem. And then if you follow that logic, mm-hmm. you can change defense investments or you can change your diplomatic outreach, you know, how we engage with the world. China would view that as a huge win because it gives them freedom then, uh, you know, to do the things that they were going to do anyway. I don't have to be worried as much with a strong U.S. military because it's been weakened by, you know, by executive direction Mm -hmm. from the White House itself. And so it opens up more opportunities for China to do what China was going to do. I mean, does that make sense? No, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, your point. So if you're carrying a political or social philosophy with you as an individual, you get in the IT sector, you know, what search results, you know, how do we define news? Um, You know, uh, who is going to wind up on a bad list, you know, as an extremist because of uh, what they posted to a social media site, how that's interpreted by the people who wrote the code, who then drive, you know, sorts of results to various authorities, right? And uh, so, yeah, it has everything to do. The, the youth coming up out of school systems really have to be broad-minded enough to understand the long-term consequences and the fact that, as you just pointed out, you know, these college campus situations, people are picking sides. Yeah. And so if you don't rise up in defense of conservative values and true freedom of speech, then the left is going to dominate you, denigrate you, and and deny 
you know, these sorts of, of free speech, open speech kinds of forums so that their policy agenda is pushed forward uh, without any contest whatsoever, right? And, yeah. and that, that same attitude carries up into service in the commercial sector, private sector, and in government service as well. No, I think that's a that's actually a great note to end on. Um, thank you so much, Dakota, for for joining. Well said today. Um, well said is a biweekly live show where I interview policy experts, commentators, academics, and students on various topics of higher education, free speech, and related topics on American culture and policy. You can share this episode on Facebook or YouTube. Also, you can share the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Anchor, or download it any anywhere you get your regular podcasts. Give us a five star rating if you like what you heard today. I'm Sharice Trump and Dakota, that was well said. Thank you.